True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. The sliding door doesn't make a sound as it shifts under his hand. The woman's in her bedroom, already in her pyjamas, ready for bed. Within seconds he strikes. The doctor, who will later assess the woman's body, describes the act as a frenzy of violence. As she's attacked, she makes eye contact, sees his face, and it's a face she knows. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to episode 105, The Murder of Marika de Klerk. It's my monthly tip on what to watch on CBS Justice, the home of true crime on TV. And next week sees the return of Coastal Killers for a fifth gripping season. Every weeknight from Monday the 13th of February at 7pm, you can enjoy a brand new episode of the CBS Justice original series. Exploring the dark undercurrents that swirl around British seaside towns. Tune in to Coastal Killers on DSTV Channel 170 all next week. And a huge thank you from me to CBS Justice for sponsoring this episode of True Crime South Africa. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank those listeners who've supported the show through Patreon or PayPal recently. A huge thank you goes out to Nikki, Sanet Pretorius, Vanessa Mouton, Sonia Forster, Janelle Ulifia, Jennifer Johnston, Caitlin Els, Yolandi Safontine, Anka C, Lynn Grobelaar, and Casey Maria Prabilski for your support on Patreon, as well as Janelle von Sittat and Len Momin for your support on PayPal. If you'd like to get an exclusive episode every month, as well as an ad-free version of every week's episode, Check out the link to Patreon in the show notes and sign up for a minimum of $1, which is about the same price as a loaf of bread right now. You can also support the show by supporting our sponsors, including King Online and Wallpaper Online, by using the code TCS18 or True Crime, respectively, when purchasing on their websites, and you'll get a 10% discount too. Or you can support me as an individual creator by purchasing my book Samurai Sword Murder, the Mornay Haramsa story in hard copy, ebook or audiobook formats, as well as the audiobook I narrated for Yana Marks of the Krugersdorp cult murders. Non-financial support is just as valuable, so please share and invite your friends to listen. This episode is quite an odd one for me because the complex where the crime took place is less than a kilometre from where I live. I've actually been inside this complex. I've stood on one of the balconies of the apartments. I've looked out at the same view that the victim in this case apparently couldn't part with when she was choosing between staying in Bloberg Strand and moving back to Pretoria to be closer to her children. Those physical connections with the case always make you look at things just slightly differently, even if it's just having been in the same location. This case had no shortage of media attention when it happened. The victim was most certainly not what I refer to as an invisible victim. In fact, her entire adult life, she'd been anything but invisible. Both she and her husband did not escape controversy during their time in the public eye, and even her death would be mired in it. So why cover this case? Why this victim? Well, because I think as I was looking at this case, I started to wonder if all the publicity had ever really been about the victim as a person. Or was it just about her public persona? And maybe the real woman 
the one hidden inside the public persona, really was an invisible victim. In researching this case, I used an episode of Heiskenuit Vala Levenstramus, a copy of The Judgment, and several media articles. So let's get into episode 105, The Murder of Marika de Klerk. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Marika Willemse was born on the 29th of March 1937 in Pretoria. Her father was an academic and a writer. He was a professor of psychology and social pathology at the University of Pretoria. Marika's parents divorced when she was four years old, and her childhood consisted of six months spent with her father and the next six months spent with her mother. It was perhaps this disrupted upbringing that would instill in her a deep desire to have something completely different as an adult. It also meant that she became quite shy and withdrawn as a child, and used books and reading as an escape. When Marika was five years old, her father had her IQ tested, and he told her that she was a very gifted young girl, and had a bright future ahead of her. While it's not surprising that an academic would be interested in the intelligence level of their offspring, having something like that told to you at such a young age can set quite a high level of expectation. A high IQ really is not a guarantee of any success in life. It's almost like saying, well, you have this huge collection of colored pencils, there's no doubt you'll be a brilliant artist. Intelligence is only one part often quite a small part, of what it takes to attain any level of success, no matter how you define that in life. It certainly helps. But I wonder whether knowing that you have a high IQ as a child is really beneficial at all. Marika did go on to achieve very well academically. After school, she first attended the University of Pretoria and earned a BCom degree and then in 1958, she moved to the University of Potchefstroom to study teaching. It was at Potch University in that first year that she met her future husband, Frederick Willem de Klerk, also known as F.W. Mirika would later tell the writer of her biography that she'd immediately fallen deeply in love with F.W. He was charming, intelligent, and she was completely enamoured with him. She also says that she was warned when she first started dating F.W. that he would break her heart. She hadn't believed it was possible, she said, but despite this warning, when F.W. proposed to her, she immediately agreed, and on the 11th of April 1959, they were married. In the years after the de Clercs married, they would adopt three children, two boys, Jan and Willem, and a girl, Susanne. Those looking on from the outside of the de Klerk family said that they appeared to be the happiest of families. F.W. was soon working his way up the political ladder within the National Party, and Marika, seemingly wanting to forge her own political career at one point, was also a party member. It's quite important to point out how FW's political career would impact South Africa, and then, in turn, how it seemed to impact his marriage. Because both of these aspects play into Marika's life, and some of the allegations around her death. The National Party implemented the system of apartheid in South Africa. From its inception in 1914, it developed a system of racial segregation which would scar South Africa and the majority of its citizens. In the 70s and 80s, though, the NP would come under domestic and international pressure 
to reverse some of the deeply inhumane policies it had implemented. These included past laws, legal prohibitions on interracial relationships, the banning of all non-white parties, including the ANC, and the Group Areas Act, which had forced non-white South Africans out of their homes and into areas designated by the government. F.W. de Klerk was no fool, and as he campaigned to take over leadership of the National Party from P.W. Boerta, he knew very well that the deeply Afrikaner nationalistic views and blatantly racist and inhumane policies the party had stood for up until that point were no longer going to fly. There is divided opinion about whether FW really frowned upon the existing policies of the NP or if he simply knew what the majority wanted and understood that he had to provide that in order to gain leadership of the party. We'll never really know which one of those is true, and for our purposes, it doesn't really matter. But I know that there are different viewpoints on de Klerk's role in South Africa's history, and the victim in the case I'm discussing is his wife, and she too was a party member and stuck with him throughout his political career. So, in turn, it speaks to her experience at the time and afterwards too. While F.W. was gearing up for his campaign, Marika became unwell and a visit to the doctor would provide a devastating diagnosis. She had breast cancer. In 1986, Marika underwent chemotherapy and surgery and she was able to gain remission status within a year of her diagnosis. Although her own political career never really took off, Marika did work in many different charity organizations. She wrote a book on the history of the Grootescuur state and made a name for herself as a philanthropist who pushed for better education facilities for children in rural areas and having grown up on a farm herself, held a keen interest in uplifting women living far from resources. By 1989, though, F.W. had gained enough support to be elected as the leader of the National Party, and Marika would later say that on the day this voting took place within the party chambers, her husband walked outside and told her, I've been chosen. It took some time for it to sink in that this also meant her husband was now the President of South Africa, and she was the First Lady. According to her biographer, Marika was not pleased at all that she would have to move from her home into the presidential quarters, and I wonder if this wasn't a remnant of her unstable childhood. She would, of course, have no choice, though, as her desires were now secondary to what was best for her husband's career. One of F.W.'s first acts of his presidency was to unban the African National Congress. When this happened, Nelson Mandela, who'd been in prison for 27 years, was released. This act would set South Africa on a trajectory to the eventual establishment of a democracy and the complete abolishment of the apartheid system. For the de Klerks, this became a time of personal turmoil. Marika knew very well that there was a shift ahead which would impact the country she lived in, the party they'd been a part of for so long, and her husband's career trajectory. And all of these changes would have a deep and lasting impact on their personal lives. What Marika did not know was that in the same year that Nelson Mandela was released, something else had changed in her life. The de Klerks had been friends with Tony Georgiades and his wife Elita for many years. The Greek shipping tycoon had apparently helped to fund FW's campaign, and the two couples had gone on several holidays together. On one of those holidays, FW and Elita had started an extramarital affair. Marika and, it seems, Tony too, were none the wiser and the relationship continued in secret for many years. 
Marika would later say, though, that on reflection, she could see how her husband was pulling away from her. In 1993, F.W. de Klerk and Nelson Mandela both received the Nobel Peace Prize for the peaceful termination of apartheid. Marika de Klerk found out that her husband was receiving the award on the night he received it. She later said that she should have acknowledged at that moment that something was deeply wrong in her marriage. Up until that point, she'd felt as though they shared everything. They made decisions together, and F.W. had always shared his achievements with her. That surprise, though, would be just the beginning of her husband pulling away. In 1994, South Africa held its first democratic election, and the African National Congress, with Nelson Mandela at its helm, became the ruling party in the country. The deal brokered with the National Party was that there would be a period of handover during which FW would serve as deputy president, and the NP and ANC would effectively work as a coalition. The de Klerks moved out of the presidential residence to make way for the new presidential family, Nelson Mandela and his wife Winnie, and Marika and FW moved to another official residence for the rest of FW's term. Once again, Marika's life was in turmoil. She was moving around and the world around her was shifting and changing, and with each shift, she felt her husband moving further and further away. In 1997, F.W. stepped down from his role as deputy president. He and Marika moved out the official residence they'd been living in and purchased an apartment in the Dolphin Beach complex in Strand. The luxury apartment complex doubles up as holiday accommodation in season, and although vehicle access is restricted, there is foot access from the beach on three pathways into the complex. Although the complex is not entirely fenced off from the world, it was heavily guarded, and rotating crews of security guards patrolled to ensure the safety of residents. F.W., though, seemed to have planned his exit from his marriage to coincide with his exit from Parliament, because in 1998, the year after he stepped down as Deputy President, he stepped down from his role as Marika's husband, too. It was then that Marika discovered that her husband had been in a relationship with Elita Georgiades for several years. Although she'd known something was off, Marika was still shocked to her core when F.W. confessed and asked her for a divorce. She later told her biographer how even though she'd known there was something wrong, she'd never suspected that after 39 years, her husband would have been unfaithful and divorced her. In an instant, Marika de Klerk said she lost the identity she had lived her entire adult life. She described how, as F.W. had stood with his bags packed, leaving the Dolphin Beach apartment, she'd embraced him and told him that if he would change his mind, she would forgive him 70,000 times over. F.W. had told her not to hold on to hope because he wasn't coming back. Marika de Klerk found herself in a situation that millions of spouses, both men and women, do all the time. A sudden breakup, an unexpected infidelity, and the end of an age. For many on the receiving end, this is a time of grief, shame, and deep pain. But most get to deal with that on their own terms. That was not the case for Marika de Klerk, though. Her pain was soon the subject of newspaper headlines. F.W. announced that he and his wife would be divorcing. He confessed his love for the woman he'd been in a relationship with for years, Elisa Georgiades, and she too ended her marriage. F.W. did not hesitate to carry out the divorce after moving out. Within months, 
the marriage was legally ended, and just a few months after that, he married Elita. Marika's friends say that she was left in freefall. She'd slumped into a deep depression, telling people she felt like everything she had lived for had been ripped away from her, and she really had no reason to live. In late 1998, though, that seemed to change. Marika met Johan Kukumur, a successful businessman, and the pair were soon in a serious relationship, and then engaged. But the relationship troubles were not over for Marika. Within days of her engagement to Kukumur being splashed across the headlines, allegations started to surface against the man. The allegations were shameful and very much close to criminal. Some accused him of what essentially amounted to fraud. Kukumur retreated to a psychiatric clinic. He broke off the engagement with Marika. She told him that she would stand by him and help him to get back on track, but Kukumur told her it would be better if he walked the road on his own. He didn't want to drag her into his problems. Once again, Marika was dealing with the pain of the loss of a relationship. She struggled with depression and started seeing a therapist. There was quite a lot she needed to work through, she realized, going as far back as her childhood. Slowly, she began to rebuild her life. She published a memoir called Marika, a journey through summer and winter, in which she explored her life and her marriage to F.W., She agreed with her ex-husband that she would allow him to read the manuscript before it was published. He removed a full chapter that revealed things about their marriage he didn't want made public. He was not happy with the rest either, apparently, but it was published all the same. In early 2000, Marika was once again in a difficult period. She had fallen ill and her doctors suspected that her cancer may have returned. After a week of tense waiting, it was finally confirmed that she did not have cancer. Marika was extremely relieved. She told friends that she felt like she'd been given a second chance at life. This close call with the possibility of a deadly disease had reminded her how much she had to live for, and she began to embrace life wholeheartedly. For a while, Marika considered moving to Pretoria, She owned an apartment there that she'd kept in the divorce, and her daughter, Susanne, had recently given birth to her first grandchild. She thought it would be great to spend more time with the little one than maybe get away from the shared memories that still lurked in the Dolphin Beach apartment. But when she stood on her balcony and gazed out over the beach and the sea beyond, when the sun glittered off the waves in the early morning light... She knew that she could never leave that place. And so, she didn't. Instead, she began to build a social circle and develop some hobbies and pastimes. The irony, she would say to her biographer, was that she'd always been desperate to ensure that she was not just F.W. de Klerk's wife. She'd always wanted to keep her own identity and have a distinct life of her own. But when F.W. had left her, she'd realized that somehow, slowly over the years, she'd slipped into exactly what she'd feared. In committing to her husband and his career, she'd lost herself. So she began to explore the interests she'd pushed down throughout the years. First up was dance. In September 2000, Marika attended the wedding of a friend. There she met John Thebus. The two became friends, and the dance instructor, who worked out of a studio in Milneton, began to give Marika dance lessons. Sometimes they would be at her home, and occasionally she would go into his studio. Thebus was quite a few years younger than Marika, and it doesn't appear that there was anything romantic between the two. Thebus and Marika were good friends, and she would sometimes cook dinner for him when he came to give her dance lessons at her apartment. They would sip on a glass of wine, and then the dance lesson would begin. 
This arrangement continued for more than a year, and Marika's friends said that with this hobby and her therapy, she was starting to blossom again. On Saturday the 1st of December 2001, Marika and John attended a dance event together. John said that the pair parted ways, and he said he'd see Marika on Monday the 3rd for a dance lesson at her home. Marika had an appointment booked to have her nails done on Monday the 3rd as well. On the morning of the 3rd, John Thebus arrived at Dolphin Beach Apartments for the arranged dance lesson with Marika. She did not answer the door. Her cell phone was off, and she was not answering her landline either. He went into the parking garage to see if her car was there, and he said he didn't see it. John assumed that Marika must have had something else to attend to and forgotten their appointment, and he left. Yolanda Wright had been doing Marika's nails for years. She had an appointment with the woman for 1pm on Monday the 3rd. When Marika did not arrive, Yolanda phoned both her cell phone and landline, but there was no answer. Yolanda did think it was strange, because in all the years she'd been seeing Marika, the woman had never missed an appointment. She continued to try to get hold of her for the rest of the day on the 3rd, Then, on the morning of the 4th, when Marika had still not got in touch, Yolanda went to Dolphin Beach. She knocked on Marika's door for several minutes, and then went to the security guard station at the entrance. She spoke with the supervisor on duty and told him the circumstances. The guard checked the vehicle exit records and saw that Marika's vehicle had not left. He went into the basement parking to double-check, and found Marika's red Mercedes-Benz there. This first attempt by Wright to get assistance from the security guards ended there. It seemed neither party really wanted to intrude upon Marika's privacy if she was inside and just didn't want to see anyone. Yolanda went back to Marika's apartments and continued to knock. She called through the door to Marika, saying that if she wanted to be left alone, that was fine, but she just wanted to know she was safe. She went back to the security guards, and one accompanied her back to Marika's apartment. The front door was locked, and the guard said that the only other way in was through her balcony. Marika's apartment was on the second floor. The guard attempted to scale the balconies from the ground, but was unsuccessful, so he went to get a ladder. Using the ladder, he made it up to Marika's balcony. He found one of the sliding doors on the balcony unlocked, as well as another door leading into the flat from the balcony. The doors were pulled shut, but unlocked, and the security guard entered through the sliding door. He called down to Yolanda to say that the door was open and he was making entry. He opened the door and called inside for Marika hoping that she would respond. She didn't, so he moved aside the curtain in front of the door and saw that the door led into the bedroom. He stepped inside and immediately saw the body of a woman on the floor of the room. He recognized the woman as Marika de Clark. He felt for a pulse and didn't find one, so he covered her with the sheets and exited the bedroom. He turned to find that Yolanda had followed him up the ladder and was standing, staring at Marika's covered body in horror. Despite the guard's warning not to look, Yolanda pulled the sheet back. Her screams would alert the downstairs next-door neighbour, who then also climbed the ladder and entered the bedroom. The guard left the two women in the room and went to call police and the complex manager. The first officer to attend the scene found the body of Marika de Clark on the floor of her bedroom. He immediately told the two women and the security guard to leave the flat. Marika lay on her back. Her arms were spread out, and her head was turned to the left. Her legs were folded underneath her body. She was wearing pink pajamas. Several more police officers would arrive, including the highly experienced detective Mike Barkhazen from the Serious and Violent Crimes Unit, 
who would become the investigating officer in this case. In the interim, paramedics had arrived and officially declared Marika deceased. Forensic pathologist Professor Knorbel was called to the scene. He did an initial assessment on Marika's body and found that she'd been severely assaulted. Bruises around her neck indicated she may have been strangled. Knorbel noticed that Marika's pajama pants were sitting strangely on her body, and he called the first responder to ask whether this was how he'd found her body. The officer said it was not. When he'd arrived at the scene, he said, Marika's pajama pants were slightly pulled down. For the next few minutes, each person who'd been on the scene was questioned to discover who had pulled up her pants, and it emerged that the paramedic who declared her dead had done this. The young man had done so without thinking, an act of respect in his mind. But the experienced Knobel was enraged, and instructed the paramedic that in such cases he should never change anything about the presentation of the body if the person is already deceased and he does not actually need to work on the victim. Knobel continued with his examination and took several swabs and specimens from the body. After a visual examination of Mirka's genitals, Knobel told the officer on the scene that he believed she may have been sexually assaulted. His full autopsy would provide better clarification. Marika's body was then removed from the scene. Her daughter, Susan, had received the devastating call from the neighbor who'd entered the flat. The woman had found Susan's number next to the phone and called her to break the news. In the very early hours after the news of Marika de Clark's death broke, speculation was rife. Considering all the difficulties she dealt with in the years preceding her death, and her own acknowledgement that she dealt with depression and been seeing a therapist, many assumed she'd taken her own life. That theory did not last very long, though. Not only did her closest friends and children know that she'd moved beyond the deepest stage of her depression, they also knew that she felt like she'd dodged a bullet with the recent cancer scare, and she felt as though she'd had a second chance at life. Marika's ex-husband was overseas when he received the news. By this time, the police spokesperson had announced that Marika's death was not suicide, and that she had indeed been murdered. They also announced that they were looking for someone close to her as a suspect. This piece of information caused huge sensation and the theories flew thick and fast. Marika's political connections were included in these theories, with some saying she was killed to silence her. Others claimed that she was involved in or aware of an illegal diamond smuggling operation, and she was going to be going to the police with information. The claim that police were looking for someone known to Marika as a suspect came from the understanding that no forced entry had been made into the home. Marika's front door was locked, but the balcony's sliding door was unlocked. There were two theories. Either the perpetrator had been let in the front door by Marika, and then, after killing her, had decided to exit through the back door, perhaps to avoid anyone seeing them, or they'd entered through the balcony. The latter theory was iffy, though. Everyone that knew Marika said she was very security conscious, and it was unlikely she'd leave her doors unlocked. And how would the perpetrator have known that those specific doors were open? The security guard who discovered Marika's body had had to use a ladder to get to her apartment. So if someone had entered that way, it meant that they were either far above average athletic climber or they'd used a ladder. The front door entry possibility, with Marika having let them in, left open the possibility that her killer was someone she knew. The balcony door entry meant that it could have been a random intruder. But that random intruder, again, would have had to have had some wild luck 
to pick the exact apartment with the sliding door being unlocked. They would also have had to get past the regular foot patrols carried out by the security guards at the estate, and if they'd used a ladder, have known where the ladder was kept. The investigation would take several simultaneous routes, but the items missing from Erika's flat would be the key to narrowing down the suspects. Her cell phone was missing, and although her purse was still there, it was empty. This, of course, was still during a time when many people still carried cash, and Marika was known to always have some cash on her. The cell phone, though, would be the key. This case also happened during a time when, although cell phones were common, people didn't really understand the technology the way they do today and particularly criminals, didn't always understand how the police could use cell phones to nail them. Thankfully, this would be exactly the case with Marika's killer. Detective Mike Barkhazen applied for a Section 205 in order to gain access to Marika's cell phone records from MTN, and he hits pay dirt. On the evening of the 2nd of December, 15 minutes before midnight, Marika's SIM card was taken out of her phone. It was replaced with another SIM card, and several calls had been made, which were triangulated to the Dolphin Beach estate. With the RICA Act not yet in force in 2001, it wasn't as easy to trace a pay-as-you-go number, so although Barkhazen knew what number corresponded with the SIM card that had been placed in the phone, he couldn't easily identify who had purchased the SIM card but there had been enough calls made from that phone while the perpetrator was in Marika's apartment, and thereafter, that by phoning those numbers and speaking with the people on the other end, he was able to identify a common person who all the call recipients said had called them from the number in question. Simultaneously, Barkhazen had begun to suspect that, considering the relatively strict security protocols at Dolphin Beach, it was possible that the intruder was someone who knew the estate well. He therefore called the security manager to ask if any of his security guards had called in sick on the 3rd of December. The man checked and said that one had indeed done so. 21-year-old Luyanda Borniswa had been on duty until 5pm on the 2nd of December. He had then called in sick on the 3rd. Barkhazen now knew that he had his man, because that was the very same name he'd been given by the call recipients he'd contacted. Luyanda Boniswa had remained on sick leave until the 5th of December when he reported for duty. When he arrived, his supervisor told him about what had happened and said that he would likely be questioned. Luyanda seemed unperturbed, and said he was fine with that. Later that afternoon, the security supervisor received a phone call from police. They asked if Luyanda was at work, and he said he was. Barkhazen arrived shortly afterwards, located Luyanda in the meal room, and arrested him on suspicion of the murder of Marika de Clark. Luyanda was taken back to the police station for questioning. His home, as well as the home of his girlfriend, was searched. The cell phone in his possession was taken into evidence, and the IMEI number inside the phone confirmed that it was the handset that had belonged to Marika. When police entered the home of Luanda's girlfriend, the woman admitted that her boyfriend had been behaving strangely on the evening of the 2nd of December, and since then. She told them that he'd come home with some cash and other items she'd never seen before. One of these items was a gold watch. The watch in question had not yet come to anyone's attention as being missing from Marika's apartment, but it was taken into evidence, and Barkhazen noticed that in a photograph of Marika that was printed on the front of that morning's newspaper, she was wearing the very same watch. It emerged that the item had been a gift from her ex-husband during their marriage and was worth close to 60,000 rand. 
Luyanda's girlfriend also told police that her 16-year-old brother might have more information about what had happened on the evening of the 2nd of December. Between admissions from the teenager and testimony from some of Luyanda's colleagues, a picture began to emerge about the sequence of events that night. Luyanda had left the Dolphin Beach complex when his shift ended that night, but he'd gone back. At 9pm he'd organised a taxi and picked up his girlfriend's younger brother. He'd driven to a total garage near the Dolphin Beach estate and dropped the young man off, telling him he'd be back in a short while. CCTV from the garage confirmed the events of that part of the night. The next confirmed location of Luyanda is when he began making calls from Marika's apartment at quarter to midnight. One of the calls he made was to a colleague who was working in reception at the complex. He told the man that his friends had abandoned him in Bloberg and asked if he could use his car to get home. The colleague said no. Luyanda then phoned another colleague who was on security duty that night and told him the same story. He asked him to try and convince the colleague in reception to let him use his car, but the man declined. Luyanda said that he was going to come to the complex to ask the colleague in person. The fellow security guard warned against this, telling Luyanda that their supervisor had made it very clear that guards were not allowed to be on the property when they were not on duty. Not long after, though, Luyanda appeared at the guardhouse and spoke to his colleagues there, and then went to reception and tried to convince his colleague there to hand over his car keys. The man continued to refuse. Now we know that the phone calls that Luyanda made were actually made from Marika's apartment, and not from outside the estates, as he'd claimed. So it's very clear that after he'd left the teenager at the garage, he'd made his way back to Dolphin Beach, snuck in, and then ended up making the calls from Marika's apartment and from her handset in an attempt to explain why he was at the complex. So what had happened between those two points? A piece of evidence found in Marika's apartment would point to exactly when she had died. At 11pm that night, Marika had sent a fax to a friend in Holland. The woman had been diagnosed with breast cancer, and since Marika had lived through her own bout with the disease, she'd written her friend a letter to encourage her and give her some advice. Then, of course, 45 minutes later, the SIM card was removed from her phone. So in that 45-minute gap, Luyanda Boniswa had made entry to Marika de Klerk's apartment, killed her, robbed her, and then started the phone calls. His colleague said that when he appeared at the guardhouse and in reception, he hadn't seemed to be behaving strangely. After several unsuccessful attempts to secure a vehicle, he left on foot at half an hour past midnight. The cameras at the total garage and the testimony of the teenager filled in the rest of the night. Luyanda had arrived at the garage on foot between 1am and 2am. He had then phoned a taxi service from the garage and a vehicle had arrived which transported both men back to Kailicha. All of this evidence was gathered and collated within days of Marika's murder. Although Luyanda initially denied that he'd been involved in the crime, as the evidence mounted against him, he eventually admitted that he had been there that night, but he hadn't killed her. He would tell police who had done it, though, he said. On the 7th of December, reacting to the information provided in Luyanda's statement, Barkhazen arrived at the home of John Thebus. Thebus, of course, was Marika's dance instructor and friend. Luyanda had claimed that the man had hired him to help kill and rob Marika de Klerk. Thebus was shocked when police arrived at his home. He'd given a statement to them about his missed appointment 
and why he'd been at the premises on the 3rd of December. He'd, of course, had no idea that while he'd been knocking on Marika's door, she'd already been lying dead inside her apartment. But Luyanda claimed he did know. Thebus was arrested and taken to the police station. He was questioned and provided a rundown of his movements on the night of the 2nd of December. He also provided fingerprints, DNA, and volunteered to take a lie detector test, which he passed. Thebus's alibi was pretty ironclad. During the time that Marika had been killed, he was at home on the phone with two different friends. There was only a ten-minute gap during that time, and that would not have been long enough for him to drive to Dolphin Beach Estate, commit the murder, and drive back home. The calls were made from his landline, and both call recipients confirmed that it had been Thebus they'd spoken to that night on his landline. There was no way he could have committed the murder. Luyanda Bonisua, it seemed, had recalled John Thebus from his visits to Marika. Perhaps he'd assumed that Thebus and Marika were in a relationship. Thebus said he remembered Luyanda's face, but he'd never spoken to him any more than a greeting when he arrived and left the security office. Interestingly, Luyanda seemed to have really thought about this red herring, because Thebus had a standing dance lesson appointment with Marika every Monday. This really makes me wonder how pre-planned this was. Had Luyanda actually purposefully committed the crime on the Sunday night so that he could try to blame Thebus if he was caught? And that seems to indicate something else. Luyanda did not pick a random apartment that night. He had known exactly whose apartment he was going into. He knew Marika lived alone. He knew he could easily overpower her. And perhaps due to who her ex-husband was, he'd also assumed she would have many valuables for him to steal. Professor Knobel's autopsy results would indicate how violent Luyanda's attack on Marika had been. She had been stabbed once in the back, possibly the initial wound, but when this weapon was located, the blade had detached from the handle, so it seems that after that first stab wound, Luyanda had dropped the knife and proceeded to assault Marika with his fists, and then, when she was on the ground, he'd strangled her to death. Many of the bones in her neck were broken, which spoke to the force with which she'd been throttled. The day after John Thebus was taken into custody, cleared and released on that same day, police returned to search the grounds of Dolphin Beach. In the grass, they found two yellow gloves, commonly used for cleaning. The gloves had red stains on the outside, which proved to be Marika de Klerk's blood. On the inside, DNA belonging to Luyanda Bonisua was found, but it was combined with other DNA samples. The security supervisor confirmed that the gloves were similar to those issued to security guards in his employ when they took turns to clean the staff ablution facilities. This would explain the mixture of DNA samples inside the gloves, and although it didn't rule out anyone else from having committed the crime, when combined with the other evidence against Luyanda, it only served to strengthen the case against him, especially since he claimed not to have actually killed Marika. This, he claimed, was done by John Thebus, but Thebus's DNA was not a contributor to the mixture in the gloves. In August 2002, the trial of Luyanda Mboniswa began before Judge John Clope. Before the trial could truly start in earnest, three matters which would form trials within a trial had to be dealt with first. The first was that, just before the start of the trial, the prosecution had added a charge of rape to Leander's charge sheet. The defence was protesting this addition 
as they believed the evidence used to support the charge was insufficient. Professor Knobel testified that he'd immediately believed upon viewing Marika's body for the first time in situ at the crime scene that she had been sexually assaulted in some way. When he'd performed the autopsy, he'd found further evidence to support this. He emphasized that he could not say exactly how Marika had been raped. He also confirmed that another expert witness would testify that they too had viewed the photographs of Marika's autopsy and without being led, had also come to the conclusion that a sexual assault of some kind had taken place. The judge allowed the charge to be added, but warned the prosecution that they would have to prove the charge. Next up was the matter of Luyanda's confession. The man attempted to claim that the police had essentially forced him to give a false confession by threatening to keep his girlfriend and her 16-year-old brother in custody and charge them for their unwitting roles in the crime. Police denied this. Although they actually could have charged Luyanda's girlfriend for hiding items her boyfriend had given her, they'd never intended to charge her or detain her or her brother, and they'd certainly never threatened Luyanda with this. Barkhazen testified as to the sequence of events that had led to Luyanda's confession, and it became clear to the judge that it had been the mounting evidence against him that had led Luyanda to confessing, and really, even the details of that confession were in question, because it had been proven that John Thebus had nothing to do with the murder. The last item was one that would cause quite a stir, and I'm going to word this quite carefully because I don't really want to add any fuel to the fire all this time later. Also, at the time, the judge ruled that the details of this portion of the trial could not be reported upon any further, so I'm going to be super careful here. The defense was demanding that a piece of evidence be handed over to them, which was alleged to contain physical evidence that proved that someone else may be responsible for the crime. Now, looking at what the evidence was, I think it was a stretch to say that it may prove anything. But it is pretty interesting, and a little bit weird. So the evidence was three pieces of carpets that had been cut out of the carpet by police in Marika's flat. That carpet was said to have contained DNA from seminal fluid. The defense wanted the opportunity to test that carpet themselves because they'd heard through the grapevine that the DNA was linked to a person close to Marika. And no, it wasn't FW or Johan Kukumur, both of which could probably be explained away. The prosecution said they were not using the evidence because they didn't believe it had anything to do with the crime. The sample had been used up during their own testing, so it was pointless to give it to the defense. The judge considered both sides and decided that there was no other evidence against the person to whom the defense claimed the DNA belonged, and that person had an alibi. They were therefore not a viable option as a suspect for the crime, and the evidence was a moot point. Finally, with these matters settled, the trial began in earnest. Each of Luyanda's colleagues testified as to what they'd witnessed and their interactions with the man. Barkhazen, as well as a number of expert witnesses, also testified. Luyanda did not take the stand in his own defense. He actually did not present a defense, which, although he didn't need to, meant that the judge would have no other version to compare against what the prosecution was saying. Leander was essentially saying he didn't do it, and that was that. The only witness the defense presented was a DNA expert to testify about the DNA found inside the gloves, and that testimony didn't actually help his case at all. His DNA expert said that yes, there was a mix of different DNA samples inside the glove, but Luyanda's DNA was a major contributor to that mix, 
And yes, the blood on the outside of that same glove was Marika de Klerk's. The trial was huge headline news and drew a lot of attention, both locally and internationally. It went on for several months until in May 2003, more than two years after Marika had been found brutally murdered, the judge was ready to pass sentence. Luyanda Boniswa was found guilty on three of the four charges against him. He was found guilty of Marika's murder, housebreaking and robbery, but he was found not guilty on the rape charge, as the judge felt that there was insufficient evidence to prove this. On this, it's important to remember that in 2001, the legal definition of rape did not include penetration with a foreign object, anal penetration, digital penetration or oral rape. Rape was essentially only legally considered as such if a woman's vagina was forcibly penetrated with a penis. Other forms of sexual assault would have fallen under different crime categories at that time, and perhaps the prosecution would have been more successful with a different charge, but it was not to be. Although this alleged part of the crime would not fall under sentencing, when the judge did hand down his decision about how much time the young man would spend in prison, it seemed to have made little difference. Leander Boniswa was handed down two life sentences. In the years since Marika de Klerk's murder, her ex-husband has also passed away. Her children have continued to grow their own families and are grateful for the memoir Marika left behind, which is a deep connection to their mother and the life she lived with them. Luyanda Boniswa has seemingly given up attempting to claim innocence and seems to have had a rather easy ride in prison. I was quite surprised to find a photograph of Luyanda in his orange prison jumpsuit performing some community service act. In the picture, he's picking up litter, and I'm guessing this was some form of work situation for low to medium security prisoners. I think the most shocking part of the photograph, though, is that Luyanda is on the beach. He's got a piece of litter in his hands. He's about to put it in a bag. In the background is Table Mountain, edged by the blue of the ocean and even bluer Cape Town sky. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it's taken very close to Dolphin Beach. The beautiful view that had kept Marika de Klerk in Bloberg, the one she'd looked out over every morning with gratitude, that had helped her to heal her broken heart many times over, is now the same scene in which the man who killed her in his garish orange prison attire, smiles broadly into the camera. Luyanda Boniswa has attempted to have parole granted to him on several occasions in the last few years. On each occasion, Marika's children opposed the parole and refused to participate in a victim-offender dialogue. Recently, Luyanda complained that he felt he was being held back from parole due to the declined VOD by the family. This is not really how it works, so there's not much to this claim. A VOD is part of the process, but it's not a requirement to get parole. Luyanda Boniswa claims to be completely rehabilitated. Despite this, we still have no idea why this crime was committed, or, indeed, how far in advance it was premeditated. The way in which he gained access to Marika's apartment still bothers me, because I haven't been able to find anything that explains how he achieved it. From the details available, it seems clear that Luyanda purposefully targeted Marika, likely because he believed she would have significant valuables in her apartment. He seems, at least in my mind, to have planned this right down to the day he chose to do it. At midnight, on the night preceding the standing appointment John Thebus would have had with Marika, 
before then trying to frame Thebus for masterminding the crime. If he gained access through the balcony, it is possible he used a ladder, but that would have been really risky, because unless he pulled it up onto the balcony after climbing up, which would have been very noisy, the ladder would have stood out there for the entirety of the crime. That would have been a huge red flag to anyone walking past, and Luyanda would have had to have time to break in between the regular patrols he knew his colleagues would be making. And still, even if he did somehow manage to get onto the balcony without being noticed, how did he know that the sliding door would be open? I would be surprised if he'd gained access through the front door, but it's not impossible. Marika was very security conscious, and she was in her pyjamas, so I'd find it unlikely she'd open the front door at that time of night. Luyanda may have faked some sort of emergency to get her to unlock, of course, but that too would be a risk, because next-door neighbours could easily have overheard, and the minute she saw that he wasn't in uniform, she would have suspected something. So this remains unanswered as does the actual motive for this crime. If Leander had discovered who Marika was, hearing that she was once the president's wife, may have given him the impression that she was very wealthy, and certainly Marika was not struggling financially. I guess it's possible that he just decided she was a good robbery target, and if he'd already thought out who he was going to pin the murder on, He must have already decided whatever he was going to be able to steal would be worth killing her over. It just seems quite arbitrary. But then, perhaps it's just a perfect example of the types of murders that happen in South Africa every single day. People are killed over far less than a phone, 1,000 rand and a very expensive watch, so maybe this is not that much of a surprise. I did find it interesting how Marika's previous position was regularly brought into this case. In the media, most articles led with the fact that Marika had been murdered, quote, after she had lost her security detail, end quote, when FW divorced her. The implication was clear. Marika had become a victim because she did not have a special security detail her ex-husband continued to enjoy. And maybe, to a certain extent, that is true. But surely it's really neither here nor there, in the grand scheme of things. What that tells us is that ordinary South Africans without security details are sitting ducks. But also... It spreads the responsibility from her actual murderer to other people, especially her ex-husband. Which, although many may agree FW was many things, I don't know that we can stretch far enough to say that his infidelity murdered his wife. The judgment in this case opens up with a description of the victim. Marika de Klerk, the former first lady. I found that, firstly, a little unnecessary, but also, I wondered what Marika would have thought about that. She was certainly proud of her time alongside her husband, but hadn't she wanted to do everything she could to avoid being just that? Just F.W.'s wife, or former wife? And then, in one of the final documents relating to her life and death, This is added as a qualifier. Former First Lady. Marika de Klerk was a lot of things to a lot of people. And I've spoken before about how, in general, we seek out the virtues of the perfect victim. The perfect victim. The one we deem worthy of our sorrow. Is a victim who, in life, has not had a single blight on their record as a human being. They've never told a lie, never held any views others disagree with, never been addicted to anything. They are perfect, worthy, and they don't exist. 
Have you ever wondered what an episode about your life and death might look like? Would it all be glowing terms and perfect actions? Would every single person I speak to have only good things to say about you? Probably not, right? Yeah, me neither. I went back and forth on whether I was going to cover this case because it dragged me kicking and screaming so far into the political realm which I try so hard to avoid. But as I'm beginning to realize, the things I once planned to avoid, gangs, organized and political crimes, are intimately wrapped up in almost everything. And maybe... If I claim to want to tell the stories of victims of violent crime in South Africa, I don't get to pick and choose which stories make me uncomfortable. When I look at Marika as a woman, I have deep empathy for what she was going through in the years before her death. She, like many women, had devoted herself so deeply to her husband and children that when those two parts of her lives were no longer relevant, she suddenly realized she had no idea who she was. She had to get to know Marika again, and she was trying to do just that. She was going through therapy, enjoying new hobbies and learning to socialize as a single woman. By all accounts, she was blossoming. And although it undoubtedly would have taken many more years for that to be fully accomplished, her second chance was ripped away. And now, those who loved her can only imagine who she may have become had her paths not crossed with the killer. Marika de Klerk, rest gently. Thank you for listening to episode 105, The Murder of Marika de Klerk. If you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content, please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on Spotify or the platform you're using to listen right now. If you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Live Through This. You can follow both podcasts on social media, We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon. Mm